0: Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, hey. and we are here, myself and this guy, Sirfial. We can actually see each other now through the uh, the wonder that is modern technology. So we've got uh, prof- Professor Wham with us,
1: Doctor C.S. Matthews.
0: Yes, yes, and uh, we actually uh heard about you because we w- watched the anomaly archives uh presentations and you were part of them and serfiel said that uh, i needed to watch your presentation and i did and i was like well we should uh, we should get you on the show and we're going to talk about that presentation a little bit but i also found out that you have a book called mysterious beauty and I should also say that you are a co-host of the Church of Mabus podcast as well. So welcome to Conspire Normal.
2: Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about these things.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um now you have a book out, like I'd said before, called Meaningful Beauty about the Hudson Valley. Mysterious and, beauty. But yes, mysterious beauty. Sorry. It is uh, meaningful. But- it is it is meaningful, yes. It's meaningful and mysterious at the same time. I'm just curious about kind of your relationship to the Hudson Valley. What kind of like brought you there and what kind of started your whole quest to kind of like write about what the weird stuff that goes on there. Uh,
2: Well, um, I was always fascinated with the Hudson Valley, even as a child. Uh, One of my first, Books. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know what you guys' age is, but when I was in first grade, uh, we had the option of buying uh, Scholastic books. I don't know if you did that when you were young. Yeah, but, they did. Like, um, they
0: did like the book fairs. I remember those. quite Yeah,
2: right. right. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we, well, we, they didn't have book fairs where I was because this was back in like the. This was like back in the mid to late 60s that's dating me okay but um, they did have the book service where you could purchase books and one of the first books I ever bought was a book that was that talked about strange and weird stories because that's what so one of the things I was interested in and there were several stories in that book from the Hudson Valley and they talked about the Hudson Valley in different ways you know and and of course it was like it was this, for me, it was this magical place, you know, where these weird things happened. And so, and and I'm like in the first grade. So I said to myself, I really want to go there someday. So, you know, many, many years later, it turned out and, you know, my life and everything, and it's too much to go into, but it, I had an opportunity to come here. And I didn't know how long I would stay. I was up. I was up here visiting a friend, and I was thinking about moving because my situation where I was living was like even way too expensive and difficult to be to deal with. I was living in the D.C. area, which is you know I don't. It's I can't even describe the level of stress that goes on living in that area. But anyway,
0: you don't recommend it.
2: Oh my God, it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, anyway, so i I came up here and visited and realized I it was it is as interesting and magical in many ways as as I had imagined it. And so I moved up here and I've been up here now for about eleven years. And um I mean, I've always been interested in paranormal things, and i I mean I've been studying um, like UFOs at least as a paranormal thing for or subject for, uh, let's see, probably forty-five or fifty years. Most most of my life, even before I became an adult, and um, so I was already interested in all that. And I knew that the Hudson Valley was a place where these you know, various of these things are supposed to to occur. I mean, by that by the time I came here, I had written a dissertation and a master's thesis, not in that order, obviously, um, dealing with. UFO experiences and abduction stories and stuff like that. So I already had those interests present. So obviously I was going to kind of pay attention to what was going on here uh, about that. And gradually over time, uh, I I mean I had sort of walked away from the academic study of it because um, you know like most people who write dissertations, you know, I don't know a single person who's ever written a dissertation that doesn't have like a horror story that's connected to it. And and I had my horror story and it was different than other people's, but it was one. And so, you know, by the time you're finished with something like that, you're just sick of it. You're just sick of all of it. And 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 I had gotten kind of sick of the, the weird politics in the UFO community, which still exists. And so I oh, yeah. sort of I'd sort of walked away from the community part of it and was not really interested in studying it so much anymore. Uh, although I, you know, I, I maintained some of my books, you know, like I kept on my John Keel, I kept my Jacques Vallée, you know, I kept a few other things like that. Um, I, I did get rid of a big load of books though. And now there's a couple of them that I regret because I actually had found an original edition Mint in mint condition of Kenneth Arnold's original book that Ray Palmer had done the artwork for. Oh, nice, uh, wow! And and I had sold it. I had found it in the used bookstore for like a dollar seventy-five because they had no idea what it was. When I actually looked up how much this book was worth, it's like seven hundred or eight hundred dollars. That's <laughs> a,
0: that's amazing! Wow.
2: Such an idiot. But anyway. <laughs> um the, the the person and i have to give credit where credit is due the person who brought me back there were two things that brought me back to studying um studying paranormal stuff which eventually led to the book one was um andy colvin um who i know that he's kind of an interesting and problematic figure for some people but his work um uh, at in his books, the Mothman, uh, the Mothman's photographer. Right. I Mm -hmm. I read those first two volumes and there was something about some of the people that he interviewed, you know, uh, and that, I don't know what it was exactly. There were a bunch of, uh, Steph would appreciate that there were a bunch of like personal synchronicities in some of his, not just his accounts, but in some of the people that he interviewed um, and it got me to really thinking about my own experiences, what had caused me to be interested in paranormal stuff and everything. And so I started to kind of get into it again. And that's when I hooked up with Jeffrey Pritchett when I first of Church of Mavis. When I first connected with him, which eventually would lead me to um, getting on the you know getting on the show. And so I thought I, I needed to make some extra money, like I always do. And so I. I uh, I applied for and got a position as a regional journalist for uh, the on, what was then the online um, news organization called The Examiner. It became Axios. It was sold to Axios and became Axios, which you may be familiar with now.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. Oh,
2: but, yeah. But, but it was The Examiner. And so I did their paranormal and cultural interest Hudson Valley page and actually had quite a, got some interest, you know, I mean, I actually had a little bit of a following. And then I had a, a couple of really weird paranormal experiences here, which I didn't expect, including one experience, which, um, you know, it was a very, very classic. And please understand, I had no interest in this at all, because I just didn't think about it and care about it that much. I had one of those classic experiences where a, what looks like what we call Bigfoot just appears in front of your car and walks across the road right in front of you. Oh
0: man. Was that in the Hudson Valley?
2: Yes. Yes. I okay. was, I, I was coming home from a, a class that I had taught. I taught a lot of evening classes and I was on, I was spending, I was going to spend the night at a friend's house because I had an early, I, I commuted, quite a distance and I had an early morning class like a 7 30 8 o'clock class and I didn't want to drive all the way home you know like and then drive all the way back you know so I, oftentimes when I, I would stay at a friend's house that was closer so that I wouldn't have to do that and she li- she lived at the time in a very rural area um in Dutchess County and uh and those of you who are if any of your listeners are from Dutchess County they'll be familiar with this and I was going along, you know, side roads and, and you have to really carefully watch for deer because deer just decide to plant themselves right in front of your car. It's really common. And so I was watching, so I was alert, you know, I was alert. I was thinking about my class, that I was alert for deer. I was looking at movements, you know, I was paying attention. I turned a corner, it was very dark because it was, you know, it was in a rural area and it was like 9.30 at night. And I turned a corner and as my, as my headlights came forward, it was right in the middle of the road. And it's, it was moving slowly across the middle of the road. It was probably less than 100 feet in front of me, completely illuminated. And as soon as the headlights hit it, whatever it was, it put up its arm like to shield its eyes. It was clearly startled.
1: Hmm. And
2: it ran off. And it was <laughs> bipedal. It was not a bear Covered with hair, covered with reddish brown hair, from head to toe. Um, in the area where it ran off, there uh, ran off the road. There was a, a street sign there uh, that I was later able to go back and check the height of it, and it had to have been at between eight and nine feet tall.
0: Whoa! So,
2: so it could not not have been a person. Um,
0: two questions. Yeah. Had you had already kind of started delving into the paranormal? aspects of a lot of things
2: well, this well, time. I, I had become interested in my ufo stuff again
0: gotcha okay and then you had this experience
2: but yeah but but i wasn't but it and it please understand i've always considered like the mothman stuff to just be weird you know i've never really i don't know what that is i've always considered it to be kind of a weird ufo thing you
1: sure. know what
2: i mean is it's it tends to be connected to ufo stuff yeah and so i've never thought of it as a cryptid in the classic sense and i never had and i had never studied bigfoot or done anything with bigfoot i i didn't mm-hmm. really care about bigfoot you know and so when this happened it startled me i it it scared me actually i like slammed on the brakes and just stopped in the middle of the road and i was like what did i just see how weird is this and so like a few days later I did a little bit of internet searching, and it turned out that people had been seeing something right in that area. There had been reports of things right in that area, so I contacted uh, the local Bigfoot person, um, a woman named Gail Beatty, and um, she's she founded the Bigfoot Researchers of the Hudson Valley. And so I sort of became a consultant for her. You know, I haven't had another experience like that. Uh, you know, And she goes out, and I've actually gone out with her in a few places, and um, she usually takes me out um, when the people who have reported the ex- their experiences have also reported either UFO stuff with it or ghost, like poltergeist stuff with it, because mm-hmm. those are the things that I have the most experience with. And both of those things really scare her. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't scare me. So I, I, I will go out and I'll talk to them about those other experiences. But, you know, I don't really, that's, that's sort of the limit of what I do for, you know, with her. Like, I don't go out on like Bigfoot quests. I don't go squatching or anything like that. Uh, wh- what the impact of that was for me personally was that um, I became really interested, and this, is, this brings me to my book. I became really interested in um, the sort of original indigenous stories of beings that we would refer to in our culture as paranormal. But for uh, the First Nations who lived here, who still live here, um, they don't consider them paranormal. They consider them to be part of the landscape and and, just other beings that we live with. And so they had various and different relationships with some of these beings. And so I became much more interested in sort of that angle of it. But what brought me specifically to this book actually, um, doing this book was um, I had started with Gail, I'd started sort of reaching out and connecting with various members of the larger paranormal community. And um, one of these individuals was a, is a woman named Linda Zimmerman, who is fairly well-known regionally for um, her UFO stuff and some of her ghost stuff, uh, ghost studies. Uh, and um, she and I, this was about maybe three years ago, she and I both were contacted by a TV production company in New York who wanted to do some kind of pilot for... I think it was like the travel channel or something and they basically wanted us to do all their work for them they wanted us to like turn over all of our research to them and give them access to all of our stuff and you know they thought that we would just be willing to do that for our 15 minutes of fame and right
0: right, exactly
2: yeah they they wanted us to like you know turn over, you know, give us the names of all these abductees. And con- And we were like, no, <laughs> you know, we were just like, no, we're not going to do that. And so I had, well, and they actually like both, they lied to to me about Linda. They claimed that, you know, that they hadn't contacted Linda and they wanted me to contact Linda. And it turned out they had contacted Linda and she told them to like screw off, you know? And so anyway, Linda and I had a conversation and she said, you know, Somebody just needs to sit down and write a summary book of all the things that have happened here, or all the things that do happen here. And nobody's done that. And I just sat there and I was like, you know, I have all this material. I think I could do that. So that's what the beginning of it was. Two years later, it's done. It took like two years to do, but, um, that's what the start of it was basically.
1: So then you have this, uh, Bigfoot encounter. You said you're not really that interested in cryptids, and you have you see the most uh, stereotypical cryptid there is. I know. And this area, like other you know, quote unquote thin uh, places or or paranormal hotspots, whatever you want to call them, has ghostly phenomenon, cryptid phenomenon, and UFO phenomenon, which is like like other places like this.
2: Yeah, well, it, you know, in a way, it doesn't, It, I guess in a way, it doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I found um, is, you know, pri- prior to the pandemic, there was a place that I did a lot of presentations at that I mentioned in the book, but it no longer exists, actually. It was one of the things that the pandemic destroyed. Um, and it was a small coffee shop in Red Hook, New York. Uh, and this is the Upstate Red Hook, not the Red Hook that's by Brooklyn, where H.P. Lovecraft lived. So it's a different place. <laughs> you know, if you if you look at Red Hook, New York, New York, you'll find there's more than one. But this is the one that's in Dutchess County, and um, it was a because of the, the the interests of the owner, I was able to do a lot of presentations there. Gail did a lot of her first Bigfoot groups there. And so I was able to talk to a lot of different people who um, would come to these presentations and would have a variety of different experiences. And uh, one of the things that I found and one of the things that Linda has found is that there's, there's always somebody who comes up to you and says, I mean, without exception, there's always somebody who comes up to you and says, um, you know, I've never told anyone this before, but... And then right. they'll tell you the story that they, and it can be it can be a ghost story. It can be a UFO story. It can be a Bigfoot story. I mean, one of the big unfolding things that happened to me in the book was it turned out that where I was, the gym that I was attending, the gym that I, I, I went to a private gym. It's, it's sort of open half time now. I haven't, because of my new job, I haven't been able to return there since last summer. But um, the guy who owns it, it turns out that he and his family have had a multitude of experiences that, that I detail in di- different parts in the book. Um, like you know, he had the he's had a couple of just bizarre ghost experiences. One shadow person experience that was terrifying to him. Um, he has on his on um, CCTV in his gym. He has captured extraordinary. I think it's some of the most extraordinary. Um, ultra geist activity i've ever seen um and and but he also had this really intense bigfoot experience when he was much younger and he he and several other members of his family have had all kinds of ufo experiences including some including one experience that his cousin had that was like four miles from my house and terrified him
0: we we find that more and more is pretty typical um when I first started doing this, a lot of the people were reticent to like kind of put. They would they wanted to put these different things into categories, and to put them in their little box. And now, I think more and more people are coming out and saying, "Well, I've had this experience. I've had UFOs, and I've had Bigfoot. Just like you said. I mean, just that same, that same kind of experience. You know, when I think about the Hudson Valley." I think about the great UFO flap of the 1980s. You know, that's that's the main thing I think about. I don't think about you know Bigfoot. I mean, I'm sure like there's, you know, ghosts, there's all probably all kinds of folklore and things that we're going to get into. But, you know, you you don't you don't normally consider other weird stuff that could be happening in the area. And we find that more and more, we just a couple of episodes ago, uh talked about a place that's like closer to us geographically that is also a weird area where there also was like this 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 weird murder case that took place um so you know the these places is like i think that you describe it in the book as being um a thin place like the they're all over they're all over the country all over the world
2: right right and and that's that's part of the reason why you know in, in the back of the book the uh I have a a short uh, paranormal timeline that I give. And that was just what I had collected up to this time. I mean, obviously now, I mean, you know, at some point in the next year or two, I'm going to have to do another edition of this book because things have changed. Um, I've gotten more information about certain types of things and I've got more information to put in this timeline, you know. Um, And so it's, you know, and 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 I, I don't. I just found this out. I'm gonna walk over here. You'll hear a creaking noise in a minute. Um, I just found this out too. I mean, and this is for people who 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 really like like to dig who like to dig the weird. I know Smiles would like this. Um, there's uh, there is a a very strange uh, murder mystery that happened. Uh, I guess it was like in 1908 or something like that. It happened, uh, it, it's, it's just to the north of the Hudson Valley up by Troy, New York, which is uh, where the Hudson Valley sort of changes up there. Part of it links to the Mohawk River, which flows sort of uh, you know northwest across the rest of the state. And then what's called the Hudson continues up in its non-estuary form up to its headwaters. And it happens right at Troy, well, right outside of Troy, New York, there, there are a number of small communities and you know they're near the Hudson at that point. And in the early part of the 20th century, there was a very strange murder case that occurred. Uh, there was a murder, a murder of a young woman named Hazel Drew. And the reason this is important is because this murder was so strange and nobody was ever convicted of it. And there was all these politics that attended it at the time um, but the, all these ghost stories grew up out of it. And the and one of the, the individuals who heard one of these ghost stories was Mark Frost, who together with David Lynch created the story, used the Hazel Drew story as the basis for the Laura Palmer murder story in Twin Peaks. Wow. So Interesting. It, and in fact the uh, the 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 uh, sto- the uh, uh investigation into Hazel Drew's murder has been reopened and there's been a documentary about it that's been done by a guy named John Holzer who's a local historian. I actually have one of the first copies of of I gave him some money to fund him. I've got one of the first copies of of the documentary. So this place has generated a lot, you know, if you think of uh, you know, you think of uh, Washington Irving and you think of uh, you know, all the 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 UFO flap that you were talking about in the mid 1980s and then the UFO stuff in Pine Bush. This area has a huge amount of just sort of legend about it.
1: I just did a big Twin Peaks marathon of of all of it. Uh, recently and reading like, especially some of the native American lore around some of these places and, and beings, it really reminded me of Twin Peaks. So that's kind of goes full circle. I didn't, I didn't realize that's where that's where that initial inspiration took, took place.
0: And also to Whitley Strieber as well. Yes.
2: Yes. That his, his, his visitor experiences that he talks about are definitely (laughs) Hudson Valley experiences. Um, We, I mean, I I have it on good authority um, that um, through my connections in Pine Bush, um, I can't give you the address, but we have a pretty good idea of where all that occurred outside of Accord, New York. So which is, um, as the crow flies, it's maybe about 25 or 30 miles, pretty much um, Northwest of where I'm at. Uh, but from Woodstock, you know, as the crow flies, it's very close. Um,
1: so, what is the general geography here? Um, so, people who may not be familiar, where what is technically the the valley? Where does it stretch from from south to north?
2: Okay, it's a it's the 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 Hudson Valley is the Hudson Valley uh, is obviously connected to the Hudson River. Uh, and it, it's, it goes from um, New York City, w- which, it, you know, it opens into the ocean there. It goes from New York City, the Hudson River does, all the way up um, into the Adirondacks. The headwaters are in the Adirondacks. So it, but it, it has several, like I said, confluences along the way. So that um, just north of Albany, in, in this place called Troy, Uh, It sort of splits a little bit because part of it joins with the Mohawk River, which has its own lore, by the way, which I'm only just discovering um, in the last year. It has its own kind of interesting history and mystery and stuff. Um, It's also another very beautiful river valley, just not, it's not connected to the Catskills, so it's not quite as, um, I guess, picturesque in that way, but it is very beautiful. And then so that's, the, so that's what happens on one side of the Hudson. And then the rest of the Hudson, like I said, goes up into the Adirondacks. And there are, I mean, you can look it up in Wikipedia, but there are like several sources in the Adirondacks which feed down into it. The difference between the lower Hudson and the upper Hudson is that the lower Hudson is what's called an estuary. Um, in other words, it has tides. Um, it is a combination of saltwater and uh, um, freshwater. And so it, at least, you know, prior to uh, white people coming and industrialization, it was a very fertile and, and rich and abundant place uh, with its, with um, a great deal of, of uh, you know, fish, migratory fish, um, sturgeon, uh, very, uh, several types of crab so it was sort of like a little mini version of the Chesapeake, if you will, just kind of narrow, you know, up mm-hmm. like that. And then um, on both sides of the Hudson, well, especially on the western side, uh, you have at a certain point, uh, beginning in the Mid-Hudson, you have the, uh, the Catskills, which are a very specific mountain range. And I say that because they have a different geology than some of the, the mountain that are further south, so you have a very complex geology in uh, in the Hudson Valley. the 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 Hudson River itself is not that old, as rivers go. Um, it was only formed um, out of the last Ice Age. So it's it so as a river and as a river valley, it's not an ancient structure, but some of the geology is quite ancient, um, and uh, what's interesting about New York state as a whole, and I do talk about this in the book, what's interesting about New York state is that New York state of all the states in the country, New York state has the most complex exposed geology. Um, And in fact, every single age and epoch and era of of the planet is exposed somewhere in New York state which is which is completely unique and um and then on top of that the hudson valley because of the glacier the, the the glaciation periods uh and uh because of uh, what happened as the glacier drew back and sort of carved the furrow out that became the initial channel for the the river valley uh, when the river eventually formed um what it's done is expose even more of that. So that if you look at the, 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 the Catskills, for example, the Catskills were formed by several things. They were formed by an initial uplift that was caused by the collision of the Laurentian um, plate to what would become the North American plate. So there was an original kind of uplift that occurred and then some erosion. Um, and then, and this is something I didn't get in the book because I didn't know this. Sometimes, sometime during the Devonian period or Devonian-Silurian period, what we what it appears now is that there was a meteorite that actually hit um, where now the um, uh, part of the Catskills are, but the crater is no longer visible as a crater. And in fact, there's a mountain that's kind of in the middle of the crater because it happened so long ago. And because when the meteorite came down, it came down into kind of a thick sedimentary sea. And the only, the only evidence of it is um, the, the water course of the Esopus Creek, which is one of the major tributaries of the, of the Hudson. It it it's a very unusual tributary because what it's doing is its its stream is following the outer, uh, the the outer um, rim of part of that, um, part of that crater what's left of it, uh, and uh, it, it, in a very unusual way because if it was just running by gravity it wouldn't run that way you know what I mean, and and then they've also done some geomagnetic surveys and found that you have the kind of shocked rock that you need to have as evidence you know for that but that's like a really long time ago mm. you know so you have that and then you have the uplift so that happened actually before the uplift so you were hit by a meteorite in that area Then there was an uplift then there was erosion then at some point it was all covered with this huge glacier that was literally they think of like a mile thick if you think about that you know Yeah, the a glaciers mi- a, a mile thick the glaciers and then really- it pulls back it pulls back and and not only scrapes out this furrow in the land, but then takes a lot of debris and piles it on top of the hills that are already kind of there, the uplift, and that's what forms the Catskills. Uh, the Catskills are, are 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 really interesting geologically, and then there's like two older um, mountain. Ranges around here that are much older than that. They have a different geology. One is called the Sean Gunks or the Gunks and that those are the mountains around where um, um, Whitley would have been. Okay. Over there. And they're known to be haunted. I mean, and, and there's all, they have an entirely different history. They're very old. And then to the then to the east a, bit, a little bit further on, but still considered to be sort of the far end of the Hudson Valley, there are the remnants, uh, they're called the Taconics in New York, and they're called the Berkshires in Massachusetts, but they are, they are the remains of, a, of an extremely ancient um, mountain range that at one time were as high as the Himalayas, and now they're eroded down. So it's a very complex geology, um, and there are a lot of, um, geologic, uh, magnetic anomalies. There's a lot of water. Yeah. There's a lot of water, um, water everywhere.
0: So that pretty much is like fuel to the fire for all this like strange.
2: Activity.
0: Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Like the glaciers really did. I mean, like they formed the geography in New York. If you've been to the, I mean the Finger Lakes, I've been to that area. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. That's where our good friend Soraya, um, where do the road go lives? I I wanted to ask you about some of these um some of the Native American legends and some of that they're talking about some of these beings and like they're kind of like they're Bigfoot like beings and things like um the puck wudgies, like the little people. Yeah, and um another one that always has kind of fascinated me is the Wendigo.
2: Wendigo? Yeah. Well, um the Wendigo is more of a, is, is, is you don't find the Wendigo talked about so much by the Muncie who lived here or, or who live here. Uh, it is an Algonquin idea, an Algonquin word, but you find that idea more present in the, in, in among the Cree and Ojibwe people, maybe the Mi'kmaq, they, although they don't call it, the Mi'kmaq refer to the, those beings as Chenu. Um But I have not ever heard of a Muncie person or a Delaware or a Mohican person here talk about Wendigo, um, although they're familiar with what it is. What they do talk about is it probably has more to do with their history. Uh, They, they, and the Haudenosaunee, what we call the folks that we commonly call the Iroquois, they talk about uh, the 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 cannibal giants. That's what they talk about. In terms of the evil um, beings, the evil creatures, and the uh, at least, and this is part of what I would need to add to the book. This is what I've come to understand now: the cannibal giants uh, were. I mean, there are several different types of stories about them. One set of stories comes from the Seneca, the ones that I'm most familiar with, and they they basically say that the cannibal giants were remnants of a of a people of a species that lived uh, not only here, but also in the Ohio Valley. And they are somehow connected, not to the mounds themselves in Ohio, because they did not build the mounds, but they are somehow connected to, and this is, I haven't gotten this straight because I've not found a Seneca keeper who will tell me yet, but they are somehow connected to the religious cult that emerged among the, the Mississippian cultures, which were not all Haudenosaunee at a certain point. Uh, and this, and this, this cult, this religious cult in some societies gave rise to, um, vicious warfare and cannibalism. And, uh, what I what I've come to understand is that um, according to the Seneca and according to um, some other groups of people, like the Shawnee, for example, they say, well, the reason you don't find them anymore is that we hunted them down and killed them because they killed people, they killed humans, so we got rid of them pretty much. Um, but the the Haudenosaunee do say that at certain that that um, up until even just maybe a few hundred years ago, that, that there would occasionally be sightings of them in certain places where they had been hiding out. And I think that they sort of passed into legend, you know, like maybe it was something that was told to kids to scare them or something. But that's kind of like, that's the closest that I have heard them taught, getting to Wendigo. Now, the do Haudenosaunee do have, do have a, a scary being that they call the flying head, which is not the same as a wendigo. It doesn't look the same as a wendigo, but it has a similar origin. Uh, wendigos are typically supposed to be, well, it depends, Ojibwe and Cree wendigo can be different, but classically what I've understood is that wendigos are often understood to be individuals that at one time were human. And for a variety of reasons, they became embittered or turned inward or became possessed by, you know, the dead or evil spirits or something or an evil spirit, and they would become like a vampiric cannibalistic being. And um, there's something similar with flying heads. They're just a head, but they have a similar origin in that they were originally human beings that – did terrible things like they were like, they did terrible sorcery or they did, you know, they were, they, they committed like terrible murder or something like that. And they became these sort of vampiric beasts.
0: It's, it's interesting. Cause there's, there's also, I think it's in Indonesia or the Philippines. I think it might be in both the, the vampire that like detaches its head and like floats with, with the spine. It's like very similar it's a very the very similar uh,
2: um, folklore. Well, and in fact, among the Haudenosaunee, there are places even today in the Adirondacks where they will they refuse to go, because they are known as places where flying heads live.
1: I think it's really interesting. You you mentioned earlier how um, these beings and the, these different phenomena are um, incorporated into these Native American beliefs, and they're much less prone to other everything like like europeans have but they still recognize that some of these are they say some of these are evil even though they're they're not you know as prone well
2: they're evil in the sense that they're dangerous to humans and um they're not evil in a christian sense you know it's not like evil and good you know it's like that they do understand them as being sort of part of the landscape um, are, are, are parts of beings that belong here. They don't necessarily understand why. I mean, the Haudenosaunee have a variety of stories where they talk about stuff like this, like, you know, in the classic Seneca story, um, Sky, Sky Woman fell to Earth from, from outer space. I mean, this is, this is what Al, uh, Barbara Alice Mann says, you know, they came from outer space. <laughs> and she, because of a, an accidental hole, in the sky, she she fell to earth, and at some point, her daughter. Um, I mean, there's a whole story, right? But her her daughter gave birth to Sky Mother's grandchildren, um, Flint and Sapling, and and Flint and Sapling. Um, I mean, the, the easiest way to, to understand this is that Sapling is sort of like the creator the creator of of order, and 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 Flint is the creator of of chaos. And so rather than say good or evil, it's kind of like it's both. And they understood that there has to be like this balance between those two. But but sometimes it gets unbalanced. And um, and oftentimes what causes the closest thing to evil in the world are, hu- are human tendencies that get out of whack. So that's why I think when they talk about Wendigo or they talk about you know um the flying heads they're they're almost always understood as something that happened wrong with human society or with particular humans rather than these things were created that way or just sort of naturally came out of the world that way you know what i mean and it seems
1: like they're related to those uh to the more warlike groups it seems like there's a there's a Connection there to the history of these like Mississippian civilizations, these more hierarchical, warlike groups. They have some of their right.
2: There's and and there's and what we went what we in the West would call ego, ego and power. Um, you know, uh, the the in uh, in uh, in uh, I think it's in Mohawk, it's called um, I can't remember the word now, I think gaunt or something like that. I talk about it in the book, it means bad-hearted. It means um, something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong in inside, and it causes a person or a being to become, it's like an infection. They become ill, and then they, they. and so what evil is, is an infection that is spreading, and so you have to find, you know, they see it kind of that. They have to sort of purify it, You know, um, stop it, and and this can happen in in regular people. So you have to be very careful about uh, being in balance yourself and resolving conflicts or or living with conflicts if they can't be resolved. You know, trying to live with them creatively. Violence is considered, you know, especially um, um, violence that that isn't done within a frame. You know, that there were certain types of ritualized violence that, that many indigenous peoples engaged in, like all people do, but that violence was contained within certain strictures and only under certain conditions could it be done. People that would just go out and be violent, you know, like have, you know, what we would describe as psychopaths or whatever, um, those people were considered to be very dangerous. And because they, they uh, disrupted the entire order of things, They you know, and and they are dangerous. I mean, we're, they're dangerous to us now. <laughs> it's not like they're not dangerous. It's not like right. they're not right. You know yeah. I mean? yeah. The question is, has always been, like with them, yeah. what do you do with that? What do you do with people like that? And, you know, we're still trying to deal with that now. What do you do with that?
0: So you had uh, your own kind of encounter with... Uh... I guess you could call like one of these like little people of the forest.
2: Um, which one are you referring to?
0: But you had the uh, you had the like the little um, meter or whatever that. You oh, yeah. The little, oh, the oh yeah, oh yeah, you mean the. Yeah. Well,
2: I guess I mean I I had we had what we think was maybe that. Um, it was we were in a place. Uh, I was I was out with um Gail and we were going through. A, a part uh, that's a, a, a park that is near her house, where there are interesting things that are seen. Mostly, what's what she has gotten there, what she does is really interesting. You know how um, people who do um, paranormal ghost investigations now they'll use all of these uh, these tools to like get EVP and. And to, you know, they'll, they'll get footage that they'll then slow down to see if there's any like little weird displacements of things and shadows and stuff. And so she has actually started doing that in places where Bigfoot and other cryptid stuff has been seen. And she has gotten EVP from some of these places. I mean, you know, in other words, she's gotten the same recordings of the same kind of phenomena that you get in a haunted place by visiting places where Bigfoot are seen which is kind of interesting but so that's what we were doing we were out there just sort of scoping it out I didn't see anything but then um, I, a a woman that was with her at the time had one of these small handheld sort of thermal devices you know it picks up like thermal radiation and uh, we she was just sort of panning it around and there was this one stump this one area where um, she is, there was this one area where she uh, had gotten things before. And so she was just checking it to see if there was anything there. And there wasn't at first, as she told us about it, there wasn't at first. And then all of a sudden, it was like something came on, it was like a thermal image, image came on, it was just like a little spot, like a little dot. And she, she happened to be closer to her than Gail. And she was like, Hey, come on over here! She was calling me by my Sufi name, so she said, Wahaba, come on, come on over here." And so I came over, and this is what we saw. This is what I experienced. We were maybe about five feet from the from the, the stump. She had uh, this thermal image on imager on, so that you could pick up heat signatures, you know. And she tested it by putting it on me and then shining it at Gale to make sure that it was calibrated correctly. And what we saw was an orb. It was like a small orb, kind of rise out of the hollow of that stump and come towards us and just sort of settle what looked like about three or four inches off the ground. What was really weird about it is that you could see nothing with the naked eye. There was nothing there with the naked, this is in broad daylight, nothing with the naked eye But there was something there, there was a clear thermal image that was very defined on with this viewer. And then I noticed that there was this one little plant that was close to where it was, where that little orb was. And it was just, I mean, it was really still. We were in the middle of the forest and it was just wiggling back and forth, just really, really hard. Like there was right there, there was some kind of energy or wind or something. And I was told, I had been told by one of my indigenous teachers that if you see something like that, that means that a wedge is there. Wow. that's, a, that's a-
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving.
2: All we knew is that this was doing that, that, that leaf those leaves were doing that, and we were watching this orb that we could not see with our naked eyes, but could see on an infrared scanner, or, I mean, a thermal scanner, you know, like a flare. It's like a little mini flare. We knew something was there, but you couldn't see it with your naked eye. And so what I did was I said, you know what? We need to, like, not engage with this, because you're really not supposed to engage with little people. Is if you do too much, they'll follow you home, <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose.
1: Definitely don't eat or drink anything they give you. So
2: I, I took out tobacco, and I gave it an offering, yep. and I said, "Want a sheep? Thank you." And we backed off. We just backed off and just left it. <laughs> so, so whatever that was, it was something, but I don't know what it was.
0: So kind of, kind of to segue a little bit, you write about this that the rip van winkle story uh is basically like fairy lore it has like its roots in these like you know little people mythology. mythology oh
2: absolutely no absolutely and what's interesting about the rip van winkle story and this is what i talk about in the book is that the way washington irving tells the story um it contains both clear european elements because there are there is a long european history of this of people you know wandering into fairyland and being taken away and losing 20 years. I mean, there's lots of stories like that. Um, But he combines that story with certain indigenous elements. Um, And it's, so it's really, it's really kind of interesting. And where you see that combination, if you read the original text of Rip Van Winkle, it's like, you know, you have the story and then there's this postscript. In the original version to the story, and and when you and if you read it in a ch- children's version, they will often leave that postscript out because that postscript, you know, is kind of weird. It doesn't seem to fit the rest of the story, but that that postscript is about the indigenous account- stories of some of the beings who live in the very place where the Rip Van Winkle was supposed to story was supposed to have occurred. So what it does is it takes the Rip Van Winkle story and it actually locates it in, a, in an actual place that does exist that already had stories connected to it. And that's what makes it interesting for you know us modern readers because it's like, why would he do that? It's just weird, and they're all, and according to uh, Matt Bua, who is a a local um, um, Catskill historian and artist, and he has been studying, I talk about this in the book too, he has been studying um, the diaries of Washington Irving for a long time. He has come to the conclusion that part of what that postscript is, that he, he, that he, that according to his, that Irving's diaries he got these stories about that place about Catterskill Falls and the place where Rip Van Winkle was supposed you know where this uh, happened you know happened you know in the story that he got these accounts of these beings the Manitou at the top of the mountain and all of that stuff that he got this from an Indian guide a native guide who was a navigator on, a, on one of the schooners when one of the times when he took a trip up to Kinderhook. And he, this guy, there was this native guy who happened to be there and just told him these stories. And so that was sort of his way of preserving them. I mean, I can tell you, I have talked to, I have a Mohican elder who's a friend and I have asked her about this story and she's like, oh yeah, she lives up on the top of Hunter Mountain We don't talk about her though (laughs) you know so it's like you know the the story the story that that of of the manitou on top of hunter mountain who 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 um weaves who weaves the web of the clouds and causes the rain to fall occurs no other place that I'm aware of except what has been preserved orally and in Washington Irving's story.
0: You also talk about uh, something that Washington Irving also wrote about called Communipa. Oh, uh, Communipa, yeah. yeah, A community. And this is something that I'd never heard of with the Pavonia Massacre. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, the Pavonia Massacre is, uh, it's one of those events uh, that... um, you know, mo- that most Americans don't know about, but it was one of the events that changed. It changed the history of this region because it changed the relationship between the settlers and the indigenous people. Um, and and it created many haunted places, uh, places that are not only haunted to the indigenous people who remained, but, re- but c- continued to be haunted for even the Dutch and English settlers afterwards. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna go into the whole history of it because it's very long, but Mm -hmm. the Pavonian massacre was essentially the first major massacre of native peoples uh, that was conducted uh, by the Dutch uh, in the 1600s, the mid 1600s, mid 17th century. It it predates um, King Philip's war, which happened in 1676 uh, by about 30 years. And uh, it was an unprovoked attack uh, by the then governor of the area governor Kieft um, on a group of mixed Muncie and Mohican um, peoples who had who had become nominally Christian they had converted to Christianity uh, because that kind of um, because of that they had there were some, strained relationships between themselves and some of the rest of their kin. And so, uh, because, because of those, um, that strain, they had, they had decided to to move a little bit closer to some of the Christian communities that had, that were, or the settled communities that were in the area of Pavonia, which is now, what is it? Jersey city. Essentially that's the region of, of Jersey city. It's all been absorbed into Jersey city. And, um, They were actually seeking the protection of the settlers and um, Kieft was made very uncomfortable by this. He wasn't convinced that they were um, peaceful. And they were basically they had come to stay there and the, and the elder people and the women and children were going to be there while the men went off on a hunting expedition. And so after the men had left for a hunting expedition, Kieft called several Dutch militia and they, they massacred every, every, every person. We don't know exactly how many people. It's somewhere between 200 and 300 people.
0: So was mostly women and children, right?
2: Mostly women and children and yeah. old people. And, and, and then, and then the, the hunters came back and see, this was unusual. This is important because for Mohicans in particular, they tended to take their whole families with them on hunting expeditions, and they did that for safety, but also just simply because that was just the way their their culture was. And so, for them, for the Mohicans in particular, to leave their their women and children and old people behind like that, that was an that was an extraordinary risk of trust to do that, and then for them to come home and find that they had been massacred and the massacre, you can look this up on Wikipedia. The Wikipedia article is pretty good. The Massacre was horrific. It went on for a day and a half.
0: Yeah. I actually, I actually did that today. I actually looked up, looked it up. I mean,
2: as people fled, they would hunt them down. It was just, it was, I mean, even the neighboring settlers were horrified by it because this wasn't done by them. This was done by militia that were brought in to do this. And um, it changed the relationship completely. And the reason I know a little, you know, I became really interested in it is because first of all, the Mohican elder that I've referred to, she is a direct lineal descendant of one of the Mohican hunters. It's part of her family's history. And so she, she you know, this has been retained in her family. And, and also here in Kingston, a couple of uh, it's been two years ago what's well, been several years ago but two years ago um on the i uh, on the anniversary of the pavonian massacre uh the dutch reformed church here which was the which was the reformed church that that these natives were supposed to have been converted to uh, they held a, a massive uh, did like a two or three year reconciliation with the indigenous people of the hudson valley and they had this huge event where they were basically the Dutch, the Dutch reformed church of North America has formally apologized (laughs) for the Pavonian massacre, their participation in it because many of the people, the militia who participated in it later came to Kingston and built that church.
0: So even though it happened in New Jersey, it still has resonance and effects on these people that are live now in the Hudson Valley. Well, it's
2: only New Jersey now. It wasn't New Jersey then. And it was, it's on the banks of the Hudson.
0: Yeah. It was all new Netherlands at the time.
2: Yeah. It was on the banks of the Hudson. So it is part of the Hudson and that whole, that whole, and see, the reason I talk about it with Washington Irving is that even at the time Washington Irving wrote about it. And by this time, the settlement of Communapa had been taken over by the English um, they were still, I th- and I allude to this, I think they were still feeling some of the effects of that. You know what I mean? It was like nobody would, it was a weird community. Nobody would talk. It was kind of a haunted community. Um, um, Irving talks about that. He finds it fascinating, but he talks about that. And, and the haunting in that community continued. Um, my the my the elder that I was referring to, um, she got together with um, sa- other sagamores and other descendants of of that massacre, and, and they have done a series of rituals in that area to to release the spirits of that of of that massacre, which from their perspective were obviously still hanging around. And this has only been ha- this has only happened like in the last ten or fifteen years you know, that they've been doing things like that, but they're all, but it's, it's, I, I looked into the community of Communapa and there are lots of stories, local stories of, of hauntings and just weird things that have happened there. And, um, and it now, of course, it's a community within a community. It's like a, a little area in, in Jersey city. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a little thing, but yeah, it's on the Hudson. So it's part of the Hudson. It's part of the whole Hudson thing.
1: <laughs> right. So now these colonial events, you know, add to these, this place also. And so now we have hauntings coming from, from the colonial uh, times as well. So it just kind of mixes in with pre-existing things that were already there and becomes part of that history now. And,
2: yeah. And see, that's kind of what I try to do in the book. First, I talk about the geology, then I talk about the indigenous sort of layer, and then I talk about the, um, the, the settler layer. Um, you know, and that and what happened in Pavonia sort of s- spread through much of the rest of the valley so that, you know, um, there were like two, there were two wars, where I live, there were like two, in the area where I live, there were like two wars, the, the first and second uh, um, Esopus wars, and they were, uh, they, they created, there were a lot of massacres, uh, there were, honestly, there were massacres on both sides, but there, there were there a lot of violence and um the first war the assopas people pretty much won the assopas are, bran- are a branch or a band of the munsi uh and they pretty much won and but then the second time uh the second um the the dutch came and they no holds barred they they just you know from our perspective violated every um rule of warfare and just you know because they were going to win so they just they they burned and Like where Pine Bush is, you know, where all that's Pine Bush is a major area where a lot of that happened. Uh, The second sopus war. And there were, there were at least, there were at least three documented mass massacres that occurred in that area.
0: This is again, something that I've seen again and again, that like, this is how these historical things and also lend to these being these thin places.
2: Right, and so you have, you have that, you know, you have that layer, and then you have, and I talk about this in the book as well, then you have other layers, so that, for example, um, you know, slave, we don't think of New York as being a slave state, but it was, and uh, there were, I mean, just down the street from me, there are, there is a pre- the preserved remnants of a, of a slave cemetery, uh, a small, where, where, you know, enslaved people were buried there, in Kingston, they have just preserved, thank God, they got the money to preserve a, because they were going to, they were going to tear it down. They were going to destroy it for like renovation uh, and, and, and a, a, a slave and African-American um, cemetery in the middle of Kingston. And they have really? been able to preserve it. So, and, and, the, and during um, the 19th century, even after slavery was abolished here, they, we still had segregation and um, and parts of the um, underground railroad ran up the valley through Newburgh through, yeah. through Poughkeepsie and then further north into Albany and then up into Montreal.
0: Yeah, I was about to mention that yeah you have the legacy of the underground railroad too.
2: Right. Yeah. So the, and, and and a lot of those um, a lot of those hiding places are now associated with hauntings. Very specifically
0: Right, so we have all this history, and yeah,
2: you know, so. all this history, this geology, this this spirituality,
0: <laughs> and it comes into the it comes into this weird mix. Um, it's amazing. I want to hit on uh, in the in the time that we have left with you. I I want to hit on some th- themes from your presentation that you did for the Anomaly Archives, and you guys can. You guys can find Professor Wham's um, presentation that she did uh, for the Anomaly Archives. That was back in, was that November, I think?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it was, in fact, it was was the weekend after Thanksgiving, so whatever that. I
0: think it might have been the first weekend, the first or second weekend that he did it, because he did it all the way through November and into December. But you talked about something that grabbed our interest, and all these kind of interesting, like racial aspects to some of the paranormal research, and how it's like geared a certain way.
2: Hmm. Well, what? Well, I, I tell the story in the presentation, which I will not tell here to tell here in full because they will need to go to the presentation. But basically, when I was in the in the 1990s, when I was doing my research for my master's degree, I witnessed several instances um, at at um, UFO contactee and abductee conferences where it was very very clear that abductees and contactees who were talking and refer and talking about their experiences were were using. Uh, and referencing various, I guess what we would now say were racial tropes or racial stereotypes to talk about their experiences, to talk about the, you know, the appearance of aliens. And they and they were doing this, this in con, in the context where there were black people and people of color in the room with them, you know what I mean? So, but they weren't saying this in any kind of white supremacy way. They, it was just sort of assumed, you know what I mean? It was just this assumption. And because I had um, been doing this kind of research at that point for a while, it just really struck me, and so it it just kind of stayed in my mind, and I thought, you know, I need to really kind of look into this to see whether or not um, there's something to this. And then, you know, when I reread Jacques Vallée and I reread, uh, you know, um, John Keel, I realized that I wasn't the first one to sort of recognize that there were some of these issues in UFO communities and paranormal communities. And then I thought about it, it was like, well, you know, that would make a certain kind of sense because, you know, we in the United States, first of all, well, even before we live in the United States, first of all, Jacques Vallée recognizes very, very early on that depending on whether you're in France or Spain or, or in South America, wherever, um, various UFO ent- entities that are associated with UFOs often appear differently. You know, he notices that. And that's part of the reason why he boots the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's kind of like, I'm sorry, there's just too many different kinds. They're all not going to come here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, in other words, yeah. he recognizes that something's going on there. He doesn't doubt that people are having experiences, but he's interested in what people are, perceiving about their experience and what people are saying about it you know like what you know because we all see things through a lens you know what I mean so um so if you think about it from that perspective and we're in the United States we live in a culture that is so racially and I don't mean even now but I mean of course now but has always been so racially charged where uh, racial ideas and characterizations and stereotypes and racism systematic and individual and all that kind of stuff has always just simply been part of the way that all of us are raised that it would it would make a kind of sense that if you know when we have these experiences that we would see those things through those that we would interpret those things through those lenses at least when it comes to telling each other these stories so what I I found several things one I found that I mean, I'll just say some of the things I found. I found, for example, that, um, and this is no surprise to those of you, of, of you who are fans of horror and science fiction, because this has been an issue in these communities for at least 30 years. But there's a there's a long tradition in, in, in science fiction and horror of racial troping, of positing the, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, of positing the alien as being sort of looking like Um, a racial other. I mean, H.P. Lovecraft does that. Um, uh, 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 Bram Stoker does that with Dracula. Mm I mean, even Mary Shelley does that with Frankenstein. I mean, none of that is new, all right? Um, So I looked at that stuff because a lot of those narratives actually do feed into certain ways in which alienness is talked about, the monstrous part of being an alien. Um, and so I talk about that. I also discovered that. So you know, it's we carry those stories with us. Uh, I also um, found that there is a subcommunity of of, um, and I I focused on African Americans in the in the dissertation. But there's a subcommunity of African Americans. Um, who are fascinated and have always and have had experiences abduction um, and, and contact experiences. going back in some cases quite f- far back, you know, one of the earliest abduction cases that you could call an abduction case actually occurs a full 10 years before the Betty and Barney Hill case. and it involves this, this guy. Um, I think his name is Harrison Bailey or something like that. And uh, he has this bizarre. Um, UFO experience, uh, adu- a contact abduction experience that is quite different in many ways than sort of the standard narrative. But what was most terrifying to him about it was that, you know, he had some missing time and he had some other things with it. But what was most terrifying to him was the next day, or maybe a couple of days later, after he had that experience, he was approached by three white guys who came up to him and said, Hey, aren't you the guy that we saw coming out of the UFO? And they made it, they made it into like a racial thing, completely freaked him out, because he hadn't told anybody about his experience. And how could these white guys know about it? (laughs) It was completely bizarre. And so, but but you never hear that story. You know, you, ne- you never hear that story. So what I found was that there's this whole sort of subcommunity of African American contactees and abductees who are telling very different stories that are that have that are connected in various ways to African American narratives generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but those their stories aren't told. They uh, most people don't even know about them, um, and. And these stories are important, number one, because they tell a different kind of abduction tale, but also uh, because if, as Bud Hopkins wanted to put it, if this is supposed to be a universal experience that everybody has the same kind of abduction experiences, basically, but you're leaving out this entire data set, you know, how can you say that? I mean, that's crazy, you know, so... Anyway, those were some of the things that fed into my dissertation, and I used the Betty and Barney Hill case as kind of a, a, a launching off point, because if you look carefully at their case, they're an interracial couple, you find if you actually kind of drill down into their testimony, you find that, that even though they both had an experience of some type that they shared, their, their understanding and reactions to that experience were very, very different and even their descriptions of the of the of the aliens initially were very, very different. And those um, reactions were, I think, were very much and clearly mediated on their difference in background.
1: And you also go into like uh, the uh, prevalence of Nordicism in a lot of this stuff. And,
2: and... Well, the obsession, the obsession that um, we have in sort of mainstream culture, uh, UFO culture, with trying to figure out all the races, you right. know, because right. I noticed that there was a lot of similarity between that and the kind of obsession that that racialist scientists and evolutionists in the 18th and 19th century had with trying to determine the types of humans, you know, mm-hmm. very similar kinds of taxonomies, um, even down to, you know, the, the dark reptilians versus the Nordics, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff. You, it, it's it's I mean, once you kind of see that. Um, You just kind of go, oh, and it's not that I think that this isn't a way of trying to disprove UFO experiences at all. I do think that people have, I mean, I've had a couple of weird UFO experiences. I do think people have experiences that cannot be explained and that are very interesting in their own right. But what I'm talking about is not only how we perceive things, but then how we then uh, tell those stories to each other, and then what stories get told,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what stories are privileged.
1: And then uh, the, the obsession with genetic material, too, harkens back to all that stuff.
2: And, and of course, it turns out it's white genetic material. for Right. Those. <laughs> you know, and not only that, they need us. They need us because they're degenerating. I mean, what does this sound like? It's so bizarre, you know, when you, when you actually listen to the language.
1: It seems to me that a lot of those pre-existing ideas of this, like, uh, from the from the Nazis and the, the Aryan Atlantis ideas and some of these, like, theosophical offshoots, like, that that material was already there. So I think when these UFO narratives became more popular, those were just, like, ripe to draw from. For a lot yeah. Yeah. Cult.
2: right well well and you have to remember that that also um, it, throughout the the late 19th into the 20th century you had this this kind of literature that was I call it a cult fantastic literature mm-hmm. you know like uh, um, the coming race and and the dweller on two planets and all that kind of stuff and all that stuff posits, various kinds of extraterrestrial things. Uh, spiritualism had moved in that direction. You had people like, you know, Andrew Jackson Davis, um, basically equating uh, the, the nebulas out there, you know, in space, in the Milky Way, as being the place where the ancestors were from. This is actually an indigenous idea. There's some evidence, by the way, that that Andrew Jackson Davis was, was half Muncie. There's some evidence of this. I have a, a friend who's doing some research on this. So this idea, that this native idea that the answer that there are ancestors who come from space, is not weird, but he gives it the spiritualist spin, and from there you de, you know there develops this idea that of, uh, the earliest ideas of extraterrestrials coming to the Earth and settling. One of the first one of the first accounts of that is actually the OASPI Bible, if you're familiar with that, by George Baloo George Newbrow. Um, he, he and he refers to them as the Etherians, in their Etheric ships, the Etherians, coming and landing on Earth and, and, and helping God, Jehovah, as he calls God, helping Jehovah create these different races of beings. It's kind of like his answer to the theosophists. He didn't mm-hmm. like theosophy.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and we've said it again and again and again. That like, there's so much weird stuff with the alien, with the contactees themselves. Like you mentioned, uh, it wasn't, yeah, George Hunt Williamson, who was like straight up, straight up a Nazi. And there, there were other, there were other ones. I mean, like the the connection to the I M guy Ballard, the I M movement, and and. um uh, William Dudley Pelley, and all that, all that. So you have the, you have those weird kind of connections
1: too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about all that stuff, I, a lot of that stuff in the in the presentation.
1: And you touch on the uh, the the mound builder mythos, which is something that we see. Uh, it's continuing influence, I think, right now or re- more recently, we've seen the um, influence on a lot of these uh, charismatic Christian groups and. Now they have really got a hold of it, and they're weaving their own their own stuff. When you know previously they weren't too interested in biblical, uh, so-called biblical American history. That was more like a Mormon thing, but uh, they're getting interested in that now, and and you know projecting their own histories and ideas onto these ancient structures and ancient civilizations and we just see it continuing
2: i mean i keep thinking that christians evangelical christians must really be bored they just keep doing weird crap (laughs) it's like is there any weird crap you can't do it's like what is the deal you know um i i grew up with people like this so i feel like i am entitled to say whatever i want to around them about them but um yeah, I mean the, the the history of the mounds and by you know and there were there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of mounds and if you really if people really want to get a sense of just how moundish uh, North America was and still is to some degree uh, Gregory Little has put together a, a a rather exhaustive encyclopedia of all of these mound sites and um, he produces like a map at the very beginning of it and it's like you look at this and this is from all time periods and you're like oh my god north america was like fully populated <laughs> you know I, mean? I mean seriously it was fully populated like for a long time um i mean we're talking like i don't know 20,000 mound structures yeah. or something like that at one point
1: and it had an enormous impact on the imaginations of the of the colonial period
2: oh yeah i mean they just couldn't imagine Um, that anybody other than them could possibly have done these things. Um, But uh, if we're just talking about Ohio, which is what I talk about in the presentation, we have a pretty good idea archaeologically and um, historically of who actually built those mounds. Um, And we've known this for more than a century uh, they, uh, they were built by uh, succeeding groups of, of Lenape, um, Muncie people, um, and then later the, uh, the um, Iroquois or the folks that would become the Haudenosaunee. They built them, uh, the Hopewell. They, they are responsible for the Hopewell um, ma- um, mounds and, and formations, uh, but they built that before they became the Haudenosaunee. Uh, the Haudenosaunee represents the, the political order that they live in now, which is different than what they lived in then. Uh, and then the Mississippian complex was a different thing entirely, uh, which extended throughout much of, the, much of North America, especially east of the Mississippi, um, although there were some settlements um, west of the Mississippi. But uh, that, that, that was a series of of uh, cultural complexes that emerged when a, a religious cult or a series of religious cults came up from uh, Central America and Mexico, and they, came, and they came up into North America and brought with them various um, improved agricultural technologies. Um, and what the way that different Native groups responded to that cult resulted in the reorganization of some members of their society. Um, But there were always some members of some of those societies that didn't do it. So that, for example, among the Cherokee, there were a lot of different bands among the Cherokee in the Southeast. Some of them, by the time this group had come up, they had already done some mounding and they were not interested in it anymore. But there were other groups or bands among the Cherokee that did. So uh, the Cherokee themselves traditionally have, have differentiated between between those who did that like the Mississippian mounding and those who did not um, and uh, the, the Iroquois uh, did not participate in that in the Mississippian culture the Shawnee did however and if you want an example of the Mississippian culture um, Cahokia is probably one of the best preserved examples that's in what area that's now called East St. Louis and it's the largest earthen pyramid I think in the world, actually, at least in the Western Hemisphere. It's an earthen pyramid, you know, built just by earth, um, by mounding earth in various ways. But that's like that's like an example of if people like what's a what what is a Mississippian cultural thing. Um, so in in Ohio, you have the ruin that's called Fort Ancient. You have that serpent thing, that serpent. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, oh yeah.
1: That is
2: actually that is a, yeah that is actually a Mississippi Mississippian culture. It's older. It's it's newer than some of the older stuff. The uh, the Lenape are associated in Ohio with the Adena mounds, what are called the Adena mounds, and those are mostly grave mounds, is what they were originally. Um, and then the Hopewell the Hopewell ruins are are associated with more complex structures, and then the Mississippian. Um, ruins are even larger. The Mississ- Mississippian works are even, you know, more complex. But yeah. part p- part of the evidence of the Lenape having built those Adena mounds is that um, in the 7th, in the 18th century, uh, during the American Revolution, um, because Washington wanted to depopulate most much of the eastern part of Ohio in order to keep the British from hanging out there. And also because he had some land speculation that he wanted to get finished. Um, he ordered the, the massacre of, of several Lenape praying towns in that area. And there's one, there's one um, mound there that the, that the surviving Lenape of one of those massacres, they built in the traditional Adina Manor in the in the eighteenth century and it's still there. It's the only memorial like that in North America. And you can go and visit it. And it, it it was a mound that was built to house the remains of all the people that were killed in that massacre. So we know who built those mounds. It was indigenous people who built those mounds.
1: Right. And I understand if people are, you know, interested in ancient history and they're on more of a spiritual quest for ideas like a mother civilization or Atlantis or things like that. But they just have to, um, I just think people need to acknowledge a lot of the, the history of these like racist imaginings by the antiquarians and religious groups. And, you know, you just have to acknowledge that that stuff took place first. There's a reason why um, the archeological establishment is so adverse to a lot of this speculation because there was just rampant, speculation uh that that was terrible for hundreds of years and so now they're just getting a you know actual hold on on uh you know what we can determine scientifically of the reality of it but there's no acknowledgement
2: well well I th- I think it's way past time for for America to come to a reckoning of 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 the indigenous populations that were destroyed
1: yeah just in general
2: yeah and just in general I mean because they gave us so much i mean they gave us you know 60% of the food that is consumed in the world today was created and developed by american indigenous peoples you know the the, the without them our settlers would not have survived and you know that's just the, those are the facts on the ground mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's like, it's pastime. I mean, it's the, it's the one thing I'm really passionate about, as you can see. And that's, it's partly because of my moving here and becoming aware of that history lying underneath this place and coming to know um, the indigenous people here who a lot of people think uh, uh, have left or have died. And actually, they've, a lot of them figured out ways of staying here. You know they they adopted they adopted kind of Dutch or English sounding names and they re- oftentimes retained their own communities in little tiny pockets and and, and hid in plain sight and now they're coming out again because for them for the Muncie it's this is the time of the uh, the this is the time of the, the of the eighth fire prophecy so this is a time of prophetic gathering. Um, they're waiting to see whether or not um, the world's going to (laughs) end. I guess it's the best way to put it, whether the world's going to end. It's up to us, they say.
0: Yeah. I can tell that you are really, really passionate about that, that subject. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's something that just like I can just imagine, you know, the, the, the white settler standing next to Native American in like, you know, I don't know, 17 or 1800 somewhere. And he's just like, look at these structures. They must have been built by the Israelites. The ancient Phoenicians must have come here. It was like it was built by the Canaanites and they're just, the Native Americans are like, no, we built this man, you know, they're like, no, I don't believe that. There's no way you could have built this.
2: Yeah, actually what the natives would often say um, is, and I talk, and I mentioned this briefly in the talk, is that um, if they knew, you know, because sometimes the, the natives that they'd be talking to would be refugees from another area and they might not know, you know. But if they knew, they wouldn't necessarily tell settlers because they'd already seen what settlers did. So they wouldn't necessarily say anything to them. And especially the Adena mounds. Some of these mounds were places where the ancestors were buried. And you don't talk about the ancestors. You don't reveal this stuff. And they had no idea, I don't think, that by, by sort of not talking about it or feigning ignorance that the white people would just start digging them up. It was just really not imaginable. You know, they just didn't imagine that. That was just not something right. that they knew would occur, because for them it's unthinkable.
1: Yeah, not ninety some odd percent of all the earthworks are gone.
2: I know, and all the people, and and it is true that the Smithsonian is holding lots of skeletons. That is true. Um, it is estimated, but but none of them are giants that we're aware of. <laughs> right. Except that except that there were lots of native people. That were taller than settlers when they first got here, but um, um, it is estimated that the um, I think at last count, according to Barbara Alice Mann, um, that the Smithsonian is holding over two hundred and fifty thousand sets of remains oh that, my yet, God. that have yet wow. to be that have yet to be repatriated.
0: Wow, I believe it.
2: It's it's. I, you know, from a from a native perspective, it's abominable because you know, from their perspective, you're holding these natives. You're holding the remains, and that means that they can't. They can't. Their bones cannot return to the West, where the bodies of the rest of the ancestors regenerate. So it's just it's you know, it's to them. It's it's it. You know,
0: there's crazy crazy stories about. We would how, never
2: dig up our own stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. How how that these 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 things were treated. I mean, down here, um, Chattanooga, where I am right now, you know, they were building the interstate on one side of the river. They needed to shore it up, so they took earth from the other side of the river, which is this place called Moccasin Bend, which has been probably at least from ten thousand years inhabited by people. And they, the stories were that as they were like moving all this earth, they were like skeletons were like falling into the Tennessee river, just left and right, you know, just like the absolute, just like, you know, desecration of these people's graves.
1: Yeah. Here in Nashville, well into the eighties in, in construction projects, there's, uh, witnesses of people throwing stone box graves into dumpsters and human remains I mean it's it's just a catastrophe Archeologically if you do, you know if you if you still don't have a heart at least archaeologically it's it's terrible
2: uh, uh, so you're in Chattanooga huh I, I, I spent yeah. the first eight years of my life in Chattanooga. Did you really? yeah I know I know where Ben is you know I know my mother worked at a place on Missionary Ridge. okay and in fact uh, i had an ancestor linear lineal ancestor on my mother's side who who uh fought in the civil war on the battle of missionary ridge oh really my family has interesting weird connections (laughs) to chattanooga i have fond memories of chattanooga remember the chickamauga battlefield what a
1: crazy wild place that is yes very haunted I think
0: it's that's a very another, place. That's another area that uh, I think that's is a thin area, and actually, what I was describing before a thin area is uh, Tryon, Georgia. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and uh, that's that's an area that I think also has some some interesting qualities to it. Adams, Tennessee, where the Bell Witch is, that's another one. So th- these places are I think very very numerous themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, and, and and as you know, um, Chad and um, Ch- Chickamauga, you know, it's not a very big area. And all those guys died in this oh, yeah. little tiny area. You know, it was just like a massacre zone.
0: Yeah, it was a horrendous battle. It was probably one of the worst battles of the Civil War.
2: Yeah, I mean in terms of number of people killed in in period of time or
0: something. Yeah. went over there with me uh, a couple of years ago and you know, he said he could feel it, you know, just how powerful it is there.
2: Yeah, it's heavy. It, yeah, it's it's I I remember it. I remember it very well. I mean it was beautiful, you know, it was it's a nice it's a lovely park, <laughs> but it's I remember, you know,
0: well, that's, you're you're a native Chattanooga then. Chattanooga well, then.
2: I, I was born in Kansas, and then my family moved to Ch- Chattanooga for my dad's job at the time. Gotcha. And so much of the 60s, I was actually in Chattanooga. And then we moved back to um, Kansas in the early 70s. And so I lived in kind of eastern Kansas, western Missouri for a while until... Uh, well, for a while, and then I and then I, I moved. Then I, you know, I, I went to graduate school and did all that kind of stuff. And then I, uh, I I moved or began my process of moving east in the early two thousands. I got a fellowship to DC for a year, and then I uh, and that kind of kind of wetted my teeth for that. You know, my appetite for the east and. And and I eventually uh, moved to Annapolis, lived in Annapolis for about f- almost five years and then moved up here in 2010.
0: Yeah, you put down roots there for sure.
2: Oh, yeah. But no, Chattanooga, I have fond memories of Chattanooga, even though it was an odd place.
0: <laughs> it is an odd place.
2: Yeah. I experienced it during the race riots in the 1960s. Yeah. After yeah. Martin Luther King... Um, was assassinated
0: it's had its um, it's had its ups and downs as a city um, it used to be one of the most polluted cities in the country
2: yes i remember yeah. my my dad my dad um, he would drive he he worked we lived in a suburb a white suburb and he would yeah it was very segregated lived in a white suburb but he would um, commute down to the the middle of the city and and he would come back, and the smog, the smog would settle on. He'd drive through smog, and it, in the, in the, in the and it would make it would pit the paint in his car. That's how bad it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was,
0: it was. I, I, I think by the time that I was born, it was cleaned up. But in in the sixties, it was definitely still. Oh yeah. Um, experiencing its own kind of uh bad stuff. So all very interesting stuff, Professor Wham. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, We're going to continue this on the Patreon side. Uh, We're going to talk about how you got the name, Professor Wham. So guys, tune in for that. But um, real quick, where can people find Mysterious Beauty? And uh, where can people find you?
2: Okay, well, I do have a website. It's ProfessorWham.com. And that's Wham. And the Wham is W H A M not like the band <laughs> <laughs> um, i was going to Wham-
0: sing Car- i was going to sing careless whispers but,
2: yeah uh... yeah yeah not well i didn't mind them that much as a band they're better than abba but anyway um, <laughs> 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 that's a dig anyway oh, sure, um sure. Uh, yeah ProfessorWham.com and on there there is contact information and also information uh, about uh, where you can get the couple books that I have available right now, I've got one book, uh, the Mysterious Beauty, uh, that is available on Amazon, and actually it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and a bunch of other places. Pretty much any place where you get books, either eBooks or print books, you can get. Um, you can get um, mysterious beauty the other book that i have advertised there is a book that i wrote under my arabic name wahaba Al muid my sufi name um, and it was a book i published about three years ago it's a small booklet of uh of hp uh, lovecraft inspired horror fiction uh, and um, the reason why it's kind of unique i think is because this book was written over a one month period. It came out of a series of dreams and and paranormal and synchronistic experiences. So it, it kind of involves all those things together. Um, I don't know if they're fiction or not. I think they might be, but I don't know it's, it's, uh, at some point it's hard to tell, you know
0: depends on what dimension you're in
2: yeah exactly um so uh, that's the easiest that's the easiest way to reach me and where you can get the books
0: all right cool well thank you for hanging out with us tonight professor wham stay with us Uh, we're gonna close this section out and guys we'll be back to close out the show on conspira normal Okay, we are back, everybody, to uh, kind of briefly close out the show. That was a great episode with uh, Professor Wham,
1: aka, aka Doctor CS Matthews.
0: Okay, I thought you were gonna like actually spell out the Arabic name. I thought you were gonna attempt it.
1: <laughs> um, I could if I could see it, I could probably do it.
0: Very interesting interview about her book, Mysterious Beauty. And also about, uh, what, everything that's going on in the Hudson River Valley and, uh, some, some material from her, um, talking about uh, her presentation from the anomaly, from anom from the anomaly archives that she did. So that's, uh. If you guys get a chance to watch that, you can go to Anomaly Archives. That is Smiles Lewis's uh, group. He, um, it's like a, a, basically like a, is it like a library or like an archival place that he has for various different um, writings and uh, films and I guess um, documents, just all kinds of stuff. And he has that in Austin, Texas. And they did a fundraiser last year, uh, towards the end of the year. And Professor Wham was part of that, as was, like, I think Aaron Gullius, Tim Banal, several other people that were there. Greg we Bishop, know. a lot
1: of people. Yeah. 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 It's a good, good cause. And I'm sure they're still accepting donations. And, and, uh, Smiles needs help, uh, with that because, uh, I think they have to leave that location. So they're going to have to find a new place and everything. So, right. Break right. Brick and mortar.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, It's another uh, outcome of this wonderful pandemic time that we live in. But uh, hopefully hope is on the way. So, all right. Um, I think that's it. We also did a, we did about a 30 to 35 minutes thing about uh, Sufism, which uh, Professor Wham is, Wham is an acronym for an Arabic name, like we mentioned, and that's because she is part of a Sufi, a Sufi order. And we talked about that and some about her thoughts on that. So that's over on the Patreon side of which Surfiel can tell you how to join.
1: Well, uh, when this comes out, um, hopefully we had a blast at the first meeting of our mystic crew. That is the uh, mystic crew of Normal the people at the $10 level and up of Patreon. Um, but, as far as every week getting access to these episodes that we deliver, uh, that is for the $5 level of the international association of conspira normalists. Every week you get one of these up, uh, these, uh, patron episodes. And, uh, the next level is that $10 mystic crew level where you get to hang out, uh, with some of the guests that are on the show, get to kind of interview people yourself, ask questions and have a general good time. Um, if you are further interested in Conspiranormal, then you have the opportunity to join the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities at $20 level uh, that will fully initiate you into the mysteries of Conspiranormalism. Uh, you will get an exclusive t-shirt not available on the T Public site. And, um, of course, you'll be invited into the Mystic Crew as well, get to do the hangouts, but then you'll have special VIP experiences at the Strange Realities Conference this year and whatever form that, that takes, as well as access to past Strange Realities Conferences. So check us out on patreon.com conspiranormal.
0: All right, guys, um, that's it for this week. Join us next week. We're going to talk about some more paranormal weirdness. I believe we got Michael Hughes coming back on after an absence of about four years. So, guys, we will be back to see you on ConspiraNormal.